Good morning and happy Sabbath. Um, it's, it was really nice to see those of you who were able to make it um, to the picnic yesterday. For those of you who weren't able to make it, that's okay. We'll, we're definitely going to be spending a lot more time together in person, and so we hope that you can join us then. But it was it was quite wonderful to see all of you. Um, apologies for the for those of you who tuned in early and caught the uh, pre-show um, dialogue between my wife and I. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to have Kedson ed- edit that out um, <laughs> later on. Um, so we've been going through this series entitled A Tale of Three Kings, and um, the first two parts we covered the story of David and Saul, and we'll be uh, doing a brief review, um, and today we're covering the story of Ahab, the worst king of Israel. So just going through uh, a brief review we started out by talking about the life of Saul. We, we explored a couple of scenes um, from the life of King Saul, uh, the first king of Israel. And uh, we saw that Saul makes some minor mistakes that revolve around him not primarily being concerned about God. Uh, there's a time where he's supposed to wait on giving an offering, but he gives it first anyway without Samuel. And the result of that mistake is that uh, he is to lose the kingdom. And after a series of mistakes, he's still not quite concerned about God, but he's primarily concerned about how his mistakes will affect his life. And in spite of this, Saul reigns over Israel for 40 years, and uh, though he has a lot of wars with nations outside of his kingdom, he has a strong unity within his kingdom, um, and yet regardless of all the good that has happened, Saul is told by God that he would lose his kingdom because he doesn't really have a heart connection with God. He doesn't genuinely care um, for the desires of God. And um, this kind of leads him down this spiraling path of negative behaviors. And ultimately, he loses his kingdom and he loses his life in battle. So the, the mistakes of Saul really teach us um, that regardless of how insignificant a mistake may be, um, when there's no regard for God, those little mistakes can have a significant impact on our lives. Um, so last time we talked about the story of David, and David is arguably um, one of the most renowned kings in Israelite history. He is held in very high regard. Uh, he's spoken very positively in Scripture, um, but he, in my opinion, does worse things than Saul. David takes many wives and mistresses, and his inability to be content with a life partner or a single life partner ends up being the source of his suffering while he's king. Um, he, he murders his commander and takes the commander's wife. And later on, there's this infighting that happens amongst his children um, from the different wives that he has. And as a result, uh, one of his son rises up against David himself and tries to take his throne. And in the end, David loses his son in battle. Uh, in the midst of all of David's suffering and all of his mistakes, uh, the Bible says that David consi- consistently turns towards God. So regardless of whether or not things are going well or things are going bad due to his own mistakes, David consistently prays to God, seeks him, seeks his will, and genuinely has sorrow when he does make mistakes. And when he is able to prioritize God in the right way, he does so. And so the Bible refers to David as um, a man after God's own heart. And as a result, um, God's, uh, as a result of God's promises to David, his legacy continues and his lineage um, 
maintains rule over Israel. Now, uh, the mistakes, I guess the, the main lesson here is that the mistakes of David teach us that even if God loves us, um, when we do wrong, we're not immune from our mistakes. In other words, there are results uh, from the mistakes that we make, and David certainly um, has to learn some difficult lessons. Um, but on the other hand, um, commitment towards God teaches us that uh, when we prioritize God, His will, and His plan, even the greatest mistakes that we have um, won't keep us from God's good intentions. So today we're going to be looking at the life of Ahab. Uh, now, normally we're supposed to conclude our three-part series by looking at the life of Ahab. Um, and initially this was going to be the, the final sermon. But as I was going through the life of Ahab, there were just, there were so many mistakes and so many important lessons to learn from them. And so part three is going to be a two-parter. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm watching like the third movie of a trilogy and there ends up being like a surprise uh, second half to the third movie, it's always quite frustrating. So I apologize for those of you who uh, would be sitting in the same boat as me. But um, yeah, part three is going to be a two-parter. So we're going to start by looking at an introduction to King Ahab. And this is found in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 33. And the Bible reads, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, and he built it in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all of the kings before him. Now, the repetition of just how bad Ahab was gives you a picture of the severity of how God feels about him. Ahab is kind of like that one son who is just perpetually does worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And he's like, you are the worst of them all. If what he does isn't bad enough, he he marries a priestess of this pagan religion, and um, as a result, he sets up shrines throughout his kingdom. And what the Bible says is that Ahab's actions result in God sending a drought. And so we read about this in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my words. Now, God sending calamity might seem like a foreign thing for us because um, just the idea of a loving, benevolent God saying, I'm going to punish you, doesn't have a nice ring to it. Uh, John Pauline and Renko Stefanovic uh, have published research in Old Testament theology in this area, um, there are a set of rules that God operates by in the Old Testament called the covenant blessings and the covenant curses. 
Deuteronomy chapter 28, really Deuteronomy chapter 27 all the way to 29 and other bits of the Old Testament um, will touch on this. But in these three chapters, we have the most exhaustive explanation of the covenant blessings and covenant curses. Here's a little snapshot of that. So chapter 28 verses 1 and 2. If you indeed obey the Lord your God and are careful to observe all of his commandments, I am giving you today, the Lord your God will elevate you above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come to you in abundance if you obey the Lord your God. So in other words, if God's people obeyed, the covenant blessings in the Old Testament provide a protective power, if you will, that would keep enemies and harmful elements like natural disaster, disease, and wild animals away from God's people. Um, And the blessings would bring wealth, prosperity, and influence to Israel as well. Now, in contrast, the covenant curses would bring the opposite. So in chapter 28, verses 15 and 22, it says, But if you ignore the Lord your God and are not careful to keep all his commandments and statutes, I am giving you today, then all these curses will come upon you in full force. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. So if God's people disobeyed, the covenant curses would remove that protective power. Um, If you're interested in learning more about the covenant blessings and curses, I encourage you to read Deuteronomy chapter 27 to 29. Now, it's important to note that the covenant curses are kind of an initial phase of judgment where preliminary judgments from God um, are enacted on his people. And they're really intended to wake God's people from their unfaithfulness and move them into a positive relationship with God. Um, if we look at Deuteronomy 27, uh, verses 7, 12 to 14, this passage talks about how Israel entered into this covenant, uh, where it came from in the first place. So in verse 7, it starts out where God instructs Israel, you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on, on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. And so what would happen is, or what was instructed was that when Israel settled into their land, um, they were supposed to build an altar and worship before God. They were to share a meal together, and it was a really festive occasion. Then the Israelites would be split into three uh, sections, if you will. Half of Israel would go on Mount Gerizim, the other half would go on Mount Ebal, and then the Levites would begin to um, instruct the people what to say. And so half of the group would kind of shout out over their mountaintop the covenant blessings. This, these, this is the good that's going to happen if you obey God. Then the other half of Israel would respond back with the, with the covenant curses, saying these are the bad things that are going to happen if we disobey God. And so this practice is kind of how Israel signed the covenant. It was kind of like a formal contract, if you will, and a reminder of what their relationship and their interactions with God would look like. There's a degree of expectation that's clearly set out. So the Israelites knew 
if we obey God's commandments, good will happen. If we disobey God's commandments, then bad will happen. And, and I want to stress that the curses are not a punishment for the sake of punishment. Uh, the curses are, uh, it's a means for God to then redirect people's attention to himself. Um, because of the high degree of predictability, God is simply saying, this lets you know I'm watching over you. Um, I think when we think of God, we tend to be drawn to the moments where God is merciful, where he's kind, where he shows his goodness and his faithfulness. Uh, but when we think about God as a disciplinarian, um, it's kind of difficult to see God in a positive light through that lens of disciplinarian. But the reality is, God being this all-powerful, benevolent God, speaking to an individual saying, hey, you're heading in a direction that's... Um, going to be detrimental for you, I'm going to show you preemptively the effects of your negative actions. And so here is a plague, here is a judgment, and it would then communicate to the person, God is watching out for me. And in a weird way, it provides a sense of security, and there's, once again, that predictable expectation of, if I turn, then I can expect blessing. And so, yeah, the, the, the curses are not to be viewed as punishment for the sake of punishment. Now, something that's important to note is that in the New Testament, it revisits this idea of covenant. And for us today, the question is, uh, how are we to interact with God? Does God interact in the same way? If I do good, God is going to supernaturally bless me. If I do bad, God is going to supernaturally punish me. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 to 12, the author highlights that the old covenant didn't work uh, because it didn't produce obedience. And so there's this new covenant uh, that God introduces. And so the text reads, <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern from them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not, excuse me, there's one more slide there. <laughs> um, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one who is his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So, in this new covenant, God is going to figure out a solution for sin and selfishness. God is going to figure out how to cultivate faithfulness. He's going to figure out how to cultivate genuine transformation um, in the life of his people. Uh, if you go back to the verse, notice there's a section right in the second sentence where it says that there isn't even going to be a need for people to uh, witness about who God is because everybody is already going to know. Uh, it's as if there's this such a deep 
genuine transformation that people are going to recognize godliness when they see it, and hence they'll believe in God. And so um, ultimately the solution is found in the life, death, resurrection, and mediation of Jesus. So going back to the story of Ahab, when Ahab brings in idolatry, the drought is something that the Israelites would have understood. They would have known this is part of the covenant curse. God is calling us and drawing us and trying to draw us back to himself. So the story goes that Israel has been in drought for three years, or over three years. And I, I guess the irony here is that um, the god Baal is a god of rain. And so it's almost as if Israel has turned to this pagan god. They have adopted the practices of paganism and they've committed their, they've committed themselves to, um, this different worldview. And so God looks at this and says, you're worshiping the god of rain. I'm sending drought. And that's supposed to communicate to the Israelites directly who is really in charge. Now, at first glance, this may seem like God is overly sensitive and he can't handle it when his people um, are drawn to another deity. Uh, but as the story progresses, you'll get to see, um, you, you'll get a picture of what Baal worship looks like and how harmful it is and why God is concerned with his people uh, being drawn after this pagan religion. So some things to keep in mind during this time, during this drought, um, Ahab has allowed his wife Jezebel to kill the prophets of God. And so there's kind of like this underground movement of faithful people trying to hide uh, God's uh, God's holy people um, in caves and in different places. And, and there's this time of persecution and great difficulty for the cause and the people of God. And uh, that that verse is found in First Kings chapter eighteen, verse thirteen. So here is the whole kingdom in drought, out of divine judgment. And rather than recognizing God's hand and turning to God in repentance, Jezebel and Ahab attack God's people even more. Now, Israel and Ahab have not turned from idolatry at this point in time. It's been a long period of time. Things are dying. People are in distress. And under the covenant rules, they were actually supposed to repent first before God would give blessings. Uh, they were supposed to turn first before God would send rain. And the question is, how is God going to turn um, his people from their destructive behavior? How is God going to deal with the leadership when they are so opposed to who he is? In this story, God decides to send rain, and he instructs Elijah, go to Ahab and prove that God has power over nature. Go to Ahab and gather the people and try and turn them to uh, back to the truth. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, I'm just going to go through the story, and I invite you to go through it with me for those of you who have your Bibles. Um, but for those of you who don't, I'll be posting large portions of the story or large portions of the texts on the screen. So Elijah goes to Ahab and tells him how he has abandoned God's commands and he has followed the Baals. And so he instructs Ahab, summon all the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel. 
bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table and let's have a showdown. So Ahab, he sends word throughout Israel, he gathers everyone and they meet on Mount Carmel. Now before they start the showdown, Elijah goes to the people and he kind of rebukes them and he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. The story continues on. Elijah says how he's the only faithful prophet left and he lays down the rules of this showdown. He says, get two bulls, let the prophets choose one for themselves, offer it, but offer it as a sacrifice, but don't set it on fire. Um, and call out to the name of your God, and I will call out to my God. And whichever God answers by fire, he is the true God. And the people hear this, and they agree to the rules. The story continues on. He says, oh, excuse me. So the, the, the showdown begins, the prophets of Baal start, they offer the sacrifice and they begin to call out to the name of the, their Baal. So in verse 26, um, starting from morning all the way until noon, the prophets of Baal kind of cry out and they ask for their God to accept this sacrifice. And the text says they start dancing around the altar. And after hours and hours of this, Elijah almost begins to taunt them. And he kind of says, hey, shout louder. And just to give you a picture of um, what what happened, and I've got some pictures rather than reading all the text that might make it a little bit easier. Um, so these prophets of Baal begin dancing around the altar, and uh, the text says that they're armed with swords and with knives, and after hours of this, Elijah kind of chides them. He kind of makes fun of them, and he says, hey, maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe you need to wake him up. Uh, maybe you should shout louder. And after this doesn't work, um, their chanting becomes more erratic, and the text says that they actually take um, the, the knives and the swords, and they start cutting themselves with it as it was their practice. Um, so it was quite a normal thing for them to self-harm as a part of their worship. And so this gives you just a small picture of what that uh, Baal worship looked like. And so here's God in heaven thinking, hey, if you just turn to me, Good things, I can give you good things. Like, I'll send rain. But instead, you're calling out to this pagan god and cutting yourself and harming yourself. And if you Google Baal, Baal and Asherah worship, uh, you'll, you'll find lots of disturbing worship practices. And so it, it, God holding out on Israel is not just him being incense or him being, uh, ultra sensitive. It's him seeing the people slowly destroying themselves and him longing for them to turn to life and to love. Well, the story continues. Elijah takes his turn. He gathers the people to himself. And the story says that he repairs a broken down altar that's on Mount Carmel. He takes 12 stones, each representing the tribe of Israel. He lays the sacrifice on top of the altar, and then he digs this trench around the altar. Then the story says he does something really peculiar. He takes these huge vessels of water, and he pours it over the altar. 
I don't know how many of you have tried to start a fire before. I know, I know that there are a couple people in our church who really enjoy, enjoy campfires, but usually pouring water on top of your wood, um, or pouring water on top of the thing that you're trying to light on fire isn't a great idea. Like it's just not a good way to start a fire. And yet this is what Elijah does and he's trying to prove a point here. Well, the text says in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 36 to 39, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Notice there's such a stark contrast between the way that uh, the prophets of Baal call out to God and the way that Elijah calls, uh, the prophets of Baal call out to Baal and the way that Elijah calls out to God. Um, there's no fanciful dancing around. There's no self-harm. There's no yelling or screaming. There's just this simple conversation because Elijah knows God is present. God is predictable. Um, and because Elijah has that relationship with God, there's this clarity um, that exists within that prayer. Well, the story continues on in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now, it's easy to look at this story and to focus on the fire. I mean, it's an, it's an incredible supernatural occurrence to um, pray a simple prayer and seeing fire come out of thin air and burn everything in a localized area. Um, but... God wasn't simply giving a supernatural sign of his existence. Uh, the story highlights a really important detail that Elijah offers his sacrifice at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, each day in Israel, there was a morning and evening sacrifice that took place. And these time periods were a constant reminder to Israel of God's mercy Every single day, the priests were to go and offer a morning and evening sacrifice. And so that even if someone felt guilt or shame because of something that had happened during the day, they would be reminded the morning and the evening sacrifice, they're taking place. There is mercy and God is present in my life. So here in the story, God is communicating very specifically to Ahab, to Elijah, and to Israel that he is present. Even though, and God, God is communicating to these three parties that even though Israel and Ahab are unfaithful, even though Ahab has allowed God's prophets to be murdered, God is willing to give mercy. And I love this story because it emphasizes that even when we're at our worst, God is willing to give his best. The people see God's faithfulness. They see his power in contrast to their unfaithfulness and their inadequacies, and it turns their heart towards him. See, most of the time we think we have to change before God will show his favor. And the reality is that God's favor is shown first, and that is what changes us. 
over the past handful of years, uh, there have been these terms revival and reformation that have been uh, used as kind of like this um, charge to the church. Be revived, make change. And the hope is that if we are revived and if we make change, then there will be reconciliation with God. Then God will show his supernatural power. Then God will do something incre- incredible in and through the church. But here in the story, God gives reconciliation first. God reminds Israel first that there is mercy. God gives the fire first. And as a result of the reconciliation, it triggers this revival. It triggers this reformation. In the story, Israel does away with Baal worship. They recognize that God is a true God and they dispose of the prophets of Baal. After the showdown, Elijah prays and a storm cloud begins to form. In 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 41 and 42, uh, Elijah says to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is a sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. Here you see Elijah reaching out personally to Ahab. See, the miracle and the forgiveness, it wasn't just for Israel. It was kind of like God extending an olive branch out to Ahab himself, the worst king in all of Israel. And God is saying, this mercy is for you also. And so you see God touching the heart of Elijah, and it prompts Elijah to turn to this wicked king and say, hey, rain is coming, get ready for it. It's going to be a long journey home. So eat, gather your strength, and get ready to go home. And as you read through the rest of the story from 1 Kings chapter 18 all the way to 1 Kings chapter 19, you see that Elijah personally leads Ahab through the rain so that he can get back to his palace safely. You know, for me, this is one of the most incredible stories of mercy um, in Scripture, just because of the description of Ahab, or the description that the Bible gives to Ahab. And you you might think that uh, this is going to win over Ahab, this evil wicked, uh, this evil wicked uh, king. He's going to have a change of heart, and he's going to repent. He's going to turn to God, and he's going to become good. But if you look at the very next chapter. First Kings chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. It says, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever more severely, if by this time tomorrow, if I do not make your life like one of them. So Ahab basically daubs on Elijah to his wife. Like he doesn't have the courage to... Um, face Elijah, and so he kind of tells his wife to do the difficult work. And what ends up happening is Elijah feels fears for his life, and he runs away for a period of time. And it's it's one of those moments where it's like, Ahab, you know who the true God is. Why would you respond in this way? And there's just an incredible amount of immaturity in Ahab's life. And so next uh, next time we explore uh, the tale of three kings, we're going to conclude the story of Ahab and explore how God consistently responds to this, um, to this wicked individual. And, and I suppose there were a couple questions that I didn't answer, uh, from the story in that 
God's interaction with Ahab is a peculiar one. God gives Ahab an incredible amount of mercy, but what about giving mercy to the faithful prophets who were killed during the three-year drought? How come those individuals don't get mercy? Um, it's a really difficult thing to wrestle with, this idea of God providing forgiveness for wicked people, but God not stopping wicked people from practicing wickedness. And so um, we're going to be looking at that uh, next time we conclude this series. And so I hope you can join us for part two of part three, if that makes sense. Would you join me for prayer as we close today? Father God, as we consider the story of Ahab, as we consider the story of Israel, your people, and how the only thing that's consistent is their inconsistency. Father, we are a people who are in the same boat. We consistently make the same mistakes. We are not as faithful as we could be. But in the midst of that, you are ever-present. You are ever-merciful. You are ever-wanting to reveal what's in what's on your heart, what's in your heart. And so I just pray that as we come face-to-face with um, our deficiency, as we come face-to-face with the moments where we are at our lowest, I pray that you would reveal yourself and that we would experience your best. May it bring about that sense of transformation, that sense of acceptance, that sense of understanding of knowing what's on your heart, and may we be able to grow in maturity as a result of that. So, Father, thank you for the story. Thank you for who you are. And as we continue on um, in these Sabbath hours, we pray that you would give us rest. We pray these things in your name. Amen.